Hello! Okay, so I was asked to uh, hold off on opening the email that lets me know what album I'm listening to this week until I was recording, so here I am. I'm now about to open the email, and let's see what I'm going to be listening to. Alright, let's see what Alex has in store for me this week. Public Enemy, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back. Oh, hell yeah, I love this album. Deftones, Around the Fur. I like the Deftones. I, don't, I haven't spent a lot of time with this one, but um, I like White Pony a lot, so I'm excited to do this. I like those guys. This will be a fun one to get reacquainted with. Awesome. Welcome to Mintracks, the dueling album review show about expanding your musical horizons. I'm your host, Matt Helgeson, joined as always by super producer... Jason Daphnis. You always have the nicest things to say about me, Matt. I like I like a lot of superlatives. That you're a super producer now. You're like uh, you're like Timbaland. And, I have superseded the producers. <laughs> um, and we are very excited to welcome a special guest this week, Mr. Alex Navarro from Giant Bomb. Alex, how are you? I'm great, man. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's exciting. We got a little delayed with everything going on, but uh, we're happy you're here now, and uh, we're excited to talk to you. So. Um, Obviously, you know, people I'm sure know you from Giant Bomb. What's uh, what's good at Giant Bomb these days? Oh, what is good at Giant Bomb these days? Uh, we are a website ostensibly about video games. Uh, these days, we are locked down just as uh, pretty much everyone else is in the world. Uh, so we've been doing a lot of just solo streaming from home, uh, kind of just filling the days with a whole lot of video games on the website uh, and... You know, still doing our weekly podcasts. I'm on a, a Friday podcast called The Giant Beast Cast, where we just talk about the news and, you know, reviews of video games. Uh, we continue to, to, to do what we do, just in a very different format from what we're used to, because uh, we can't go to the studio anymore. Yeah, yeah, it's weird for everybody. So, but I mean, sounds like you guys are delivering the content. We're doing, the- we're doing our best. That's right. <laughs> um, I also wanted to, and this is, is cool. I, I was really interested to talk to you about this because in addition to being a, uh, you know, video game journalist and content creator, you are also a musician. Um, you play drums and are in a band called None Above All, but, um, just talk a little bit about when did you start playing drums? Was it as a kid or just, you know, how did you get into that? Yeah, I, uh, I started playing, I started taking lessons when I was about 12 or 13. Um, I got, I mean, I was, I've been into music most of my life. My parents were, you know, not necessarily like, my dad plays guitar, but like he was never like a professional musician, but they were, they were very much music people. Um, but the, the actual inciting event was that, uh, I went to elementary school with the son of Grateful Dead drummer, Mickey Hart. Uh, Oh yeah. And so we, we weren't like good friends or anything. Like we just kind of knew each other. He was like a grade or two below me. Um, but Mickey used to come around the school a lot. Um, he was like very involved in like PTA stuff. And like, at some point I forget how it happened, but like I got invited to go to a show that he was putting on this thing called planet drum, which is this, uh, yeah, yeah. I know that. Yeah. Yeah. So he was doing a live show not too far from where we lived. And I, you know, I'd always been interested in music. My dad had tried to teach me guitar. I had no aptitude for it whatsoever. Um, but after seeing that and kind of, thinking, you know, for a couple of years about, like, what I wanted to do music-wise, I was like, you know what, I kind of want to try drums. And so I started taking lessons, and it just, it stuck. Like, it stuck in a way that, like, no other, you know, instrument I had attempted to play did. So I just kept doing it. That's wild. So, okay, 
Got to do a brief detour here because mm-hmm. I did, certainly did not expect Mickey Hart of the Grateful <laughs> Dead to make a cameo on this podcast. So, like, he was just kind of like a, a regular dad that was around the school and at school events and stuff. What, what yeah, was he like? Not, not all the time, but, like, you know, he would show up now and again, you know, just either to pick Taro up or just, you know, to, to show up for, like, a, a school event thing. And I, I don't remember much about him other than him just being kind of a nice, affable guy. You know, like, he was just... He just seemed like a very chill dad for the most part. Like it wasn't it, he was he wasn't he didn't exude like rock star energy to me, at least not at that hmm. age. Wow, that's 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 wild. Um so the Planet Drum show kind of like was flipped a switch for you to a certain degree? Yeah, it just it kind of opened me up to the idea of not, you know, I mean, I I mostly just done rock drumming throughout my life, but like, you know, it kind of opened up the idea of like percussion as music and like the different ways you can kind of approach that stuff to and you know, I'm not going to say sit here and say that I've listened to much Planet Drum since I went to that show, but at the same time, like it was a it was a really interesting and inspiring thing for me, especially at that age. That's awesome. So then, had you been in bands? Have you kind of been in bands on and off? Yeah, pretty life, much or? my whole life. Like I, the first the first band I joined, I was probably almost 14, and then the first real band I was in, I was it was right before I turned 15, and I stuck with that band for years, and I've been in different ones over. Like, there have been long stretches where I didn't play with anyone, and then long stretches where I was in the same band or jumped between a bunch of different bands. Like, I was kind of all over the place. Cool. And right now, you're in None Above All, which yes. um, I we were checking out. I mean, it seemed it's – these guys are New York. It seems like really classic, like, New York hardcore. Oh, yeah. In, in the kind of, like, Agnostic Front, Murphy's Law, you know, like, once you see dudes in a punk band that have, like, baseball hats, it's like, they're from New York. Totally. Yeah. And it's, it, these, these are all the guys I'm in a band with have been in this, you know, New York hardcore scene for, you know, years and years. Like they've been around a bunch of different bands. I didn't really know what the scope of the New York hardcore scene was when I joined up with them. I wasn't sure if it was still as lively, you know, as, as probably at least how I, a West Coast kid, perceived it to be growing up and listening to a lot of punk rock. Um, but, you know, Yes, there aren't maybe as many big bands around playing shows all the time, but like it is still a very vibrant scene and there, you know, the people show up for the shows, like there's a lot of energy to it, there are a lot of bands and it's really fun. Like I, you know, I had not been in a punk band in probably 15 years mm-hmm. and maybe even longer and, you know, everyone has been super welcoming, super cool, like it's been a really awesome thing to be a part of. Yeah, no, I mean, I was, I was digging it. It's definitely, I haven't listened to any of that stuff forever when it was kind of fun. And I was, then I was just going back and like listening to like Agnostic Front, Age of Quarrel and stuff like that. You, um, you, uh, you two stepping in your living room now? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I just went out on the street and just beat somebody up the first person I saw. <laughs> um, but, uh, <laughs> so let's, let's play a little snippet of None Above All. I think, uh, this is a song. Well, you can tell, tell the audience about the song and that you're in the video, but not, you know. On the record, right? Yeah. So I I didn't play on the record. I this is they they recorded this EP right before I joined. It's actually our guitar player that's on drums. Um, but yes, I'm in the video. It's a song called "Make It." Uh, it's about skateboarding. It's it's not. There's not like too many layers of metaphor there. It's like no. It's about it's about skateboarding. Yeah, and the video is really cool. Which you're in the video playing drums. Yes, and it's it's production values are good for you know like it looks really good. The skating footage is awesome, and I was really it's a, it's an awesome video. Yeah, so, it's it, it's fun, and the, the the guy who filmed it, it has done a lot of like skate video stuff, um, and has done some music video work. And all the 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 folks that are in the video are just like local skaters. Awesome. Well, let's play a little bit of it, and everyone, you should go go to YouTube and check out None Above All Make It. But let's play a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
hype now we're gonna yeah. get in the pit right now let's get in the pit um, I, I will say one of the fun things about this has been relearning how to play double bass that has uh it had been a while <laughs> yeah do you do you have like do you have two double bass drums or just like a double kick pedal just a double kick pedal uh i i i love the double bass drum look but i've i don't think i've ever been able to been the kind of drummer <laughs> to pull that off yeah dude you gotta roll into like the hardcore show with the full-on like neil pert from Rush. Yeah, like know, the fucking setup. 16 symbol rack and all that shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> China crash symbols and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um cool. Well, that people should check out None Above All. It's been it's been I've been listening to the uh Meanwhile in New York. I think it's the newest thing. It's it's a it's a cool EP. Um oh, yeah, it's and a split, also it's a split album we did with this band called Enziguri from the Bronx. They're they're good friends of ours. Awesome. Awesome. So people should check it out. Um oh, I got to plug my own stuff real quick before we get into it. Um, I have a, a record a group I'm in called Renegade Priests uh, that just came out last week. Uh, it's with my friend Chris Biesinger. He was in a band called Stunning. It's kind of a, a noise rock band in the 2000s and 2010s. Um, but I did all the music and he did all the, the vocals and it's kind of like samples and drum machines and guitars and synths and stuff. So anyway... If you're interested, check it out. It's renegadepriest.bandcamp.com. The album's called Every Song Needs Three Things. And so, anyway, that's my plug. And now we're going to get into our picks for this week. And um, this pick was cool because it's a band that I... Sometimes I have bands where I, I like, super, like, one record. Right. But I don't go into, like, their whole catalog for some reason. And I don't know why that is because I love the Deftones album White Pony, which is just kind of... I guess I sort of associated them with like kind of new metal and stuff. And then I heard like the song change in the house of flies. And I was like, wow, that's really, that's a cool song. And I bought white pony and I was like super into it. Um, but I'd never really checked out their other stuff. So you picked around the fur by the Deftones, which is with the album right before white pony. So yes. talk, talk a little bit about your history with Deftones and, and why this album means a lot to you. So, I, the Deftones, if you make the association with new metal, totally get it. They are absolutely, you know, of the the kind of early formation of that genre. Uh, their their first record, Adrenaline, uh, is is how I ended up discovering them. Um, they the the video for the song Seven Words, I think, showed up on either Headbangers Ball or 120 Minutes or one of those things. You know, those late night MTV shows, and I remember his, hearing that and being like, "Oh wow, this is wild!" Like. 
at that stage of my life, it was 95, I think, when that album came out, and I was definitely very into punk at that point. I was not listening to a lot of metal. I definitely liked some, like, you know, old thrash stuff like Slayer, you know, uh, Testament, that kind of stuff, but I was not listening to a lot of it. It was very punk-focused and very West Coast punk-focused for the most part, so I was listening to a lot of, like, you know, Fat Wreck bands, Epitaph bands, that kind of stuff. So my, my interest in metal at that point was, like, surface level. And new metal at that point was not like in a super established genre, if I remember correctly. It, it, I don't feel like there were a ton of those bands really floating around yet. Um, but I remember hearing that song and and wanting to it, checking out the rest of the record and just feeling like there's this really interesting energy to it that just didn't feel like you know the whole alternative metal thing wasn't really established and it just felt very different at the time. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that, that record's really good, but it's very raw. Like, it feels like the, you know, kind of the first statement of a band and not necessarily, like, the full, you know, like, rock-tumbled, like, perfectly smooth version of what they're trying to do. Um, so, Around the Fur came around, and that one hit me way harder, even. Uh, it, it, it's To me, that album is very much the bridge between what they started out as and what they ultimately became like uh white pony and afterward like white pony i totally understand why everyone calls that the deftones record the one that they all associate with that band the one that everyone kind of goes back to i I think the 20 year anniversary of that album is like this week so it's it's you know it's definitely one people talk about but around the fur i think just hit me at the right time more than Mm -hmm. anything else like it's it's a great bridge between those two sounds and also just this it, like it was a time in 97 was a time when I was on the road a lot. I was listening to a lot of music in my car as we were you know driving around playing a lot of shows. And that was just a record that I listened to over and over and over and over again while I was on the road. And it's just it's permanently embedded in my brain as a CD that was just like, you know, entrenched in my CD player. Yeah, I um, I like I said, I I was aware of. I think I remember the My Own Summer video was like, was that the Shark Tank video? Yes. With, that was, I, that was a memorable video. So I did remember that. And I remember liking that song and kind of being like, oh, that's pretty cool. Um, but I did go back. I listened to the first one, which, you know, I didn't, I didn't know at the time. And, um, I mean, just from my out, I guess outside perspective, I think it's like a huge leap from yeah. the first album to this. And then I think, I mean, they really made huge leaps on their first three records, really. Um, but I, I definitely understand what you're saying that this is sort of, this is so much more polished and I think like assured and like they seem like they've sort of honed into like what the basis of their sound is like on this one compared to the first one, which the first one doesn't feel as unique, I would say to me, just, you know, having listened to it like this week. Totally. Um, as, as this one definitely feels like they sort of understand the basis of a lot of the stuff, even on White Pony and after that they sort of base their music around and some of the, I don't know, just ideas, musical ideas and, and melodies and things like that. Um so well, we should we should play some. Why don't we? We'll start off. I think my own summer is it's a great single, awesome video, and I think this was what, probably one of the first songs that I think maybe got them known out of you know metal circles in certain in certain respects. So yeah. why don't we play a little of my own summer?
Yeah, so I mean, I think, you know, this song definitely, I think, establishes kind of what the Deftones template is, which I think is kind of a cool, uh, I won't say dichotomy, but contrast maybe between like really heavy choruses and like a lot, like really almost punk energy to the choruses. And then, you know, I think Chino Moreno, the, the lead singer and kind of, I think I get the sense he's kind of the mastermind behind the band in certain respects, you know, he has kind of a unique vocal style and, and very melodic singing, I think, which was kind of different for a lot of bands of these genres. Yeah. Moreno has a lot of influences that are, I think tend to reach beyond, you know, kind of what a lot of metal bands would necessarily cite as like kind of their own, like, you know, he's, he's very, there's a song on this record, which I don't know if you've picked it out or not, but um, uh, be quiet and drive far away, which is, is by far my favorite song on the record. Uh, is very specifically a reference to a Depeche Mode song, uh, "Never uh, Never Let You Down Again." Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. I, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, like he's he definitely has this energy that is like you know he can do the screaming, he can get the you know the really intense you know angry vocals out there, but like when he sings, like it has this very you know airy kind of ethereal quality to it that you just don't it certainly don't get for the most part in the new metal genre um but like in you know even just among like heavier bands in general like i just he sounds so different to me from a lot of other vocalists and you know his it, chino is definitely like i would say to he seems like he, like you said, the mastermind behind a lot of the stuff. But like Stephen Carpenter, the guitar player, also, I think that's kind of where that uh, that contrast you're talking about comes from. Because he's from what what I've read about the band and just the few interviews I've seen, like he seems like the one that is most into like I want to do the heaviest shit, and Chino okay. is the one that kind of wants to try and modulate that in different ways. You know, so it, it's yeah, it's I, I don't know that there's necessarily a fight or a struggle in that band over that, but it seems like they have they come from it from different places and they find a way to meet on that. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's a very tip, like a very common band dynamic. You know, yeah, almost like the kind of Lennon McCartney thing or like Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, where one is a little more hardcore and one's a little more pop oriented. You know what I mean? Yeah, a little bit that, country, a little kinda... bit rock and roll. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so you know what? Just because you brought it up, I'm going to skip ahead because. Um, you mentioned Depeche Mode and some of his influences kind of outside of metal. And I want to play the song, uh, Die the Flu. Yeah. At, at the 55 mark, because here I got something. We'll play it and then I'll, I'll talk about what I heard, which I really surprised me. But why don't we hear that quick? Okay. So yeah, that chorus really, um, just the way he phrases that the chorus really kind of reminded me of Morrissey from the Smiths Mm -hmm. and like, you know what I mean? Which I just didn't expect, but like I started, when you take away that, you know, he has a kind of harsh effect on his voice on a lot of it, but like a lot of his phrasing is way more like, you know, that kind of eighties, like Morrissey, I got some cure, you know, kind of in there sometimes. And so I thought that was a, a really interesting thing. And, um, 
I mean, I suppose it was probably like those guys are they're Southern California guys, right? So actually, they're Sacramento they guys. Oh, Sacramento. Okay, yeah. so. But I, I wonder if they just kind of grew up, you know. There was still a lot of like kind of modern rock radio in California and stuff like that, so they could probably got like metal, but also were listening to like you know a lot of that, you know, post new wave and and kind of pre alternative stuff. Totally, and and you know, I my I didn't grow up in Sacramento, but like I definitely played a decent number of shows in in the Sacramento scene over the years, and I feel like there's not I can't th- point to any band from that scene from that era that really sounded exactly like the Deftones but there were other bands that definitely felt like they were drawing from similar influences um and I, I don't know it, maybe it's just a byproduct of that scene or you know maybe something more specific to those guys in particular but yeah like I said it's just something about the way they approached their heavier stuff and the way that they layered those influences on top of that just felt very different to me at the time you know and yeah the, like, the way they've they've gone on to evolve over time, I feel like has has leaned much harder into a lot of those influences, and I feel like they've actually managed to stay pretty dynamic and pretty you know like really evolve their sound in a way that a lot of other bands that kind of get the new metal label attached to them just haven't. Um, yeah, and it's 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 why I've stuck with them. You know, it, it's it's new metal is not a genre that I have like a particular fondness for. For the most part, there are a few bands that I think have held up, but not necessarily a great many of them. Um, but like the Deftones have held with me to such a degree that like, I, I legitimately would just call them my favorite band at this point. Like they haven't made an album I don't like. And like, I, I, they're one of the few bands that I'm willing to plumb the depths and go looking for like B sides and rarities and stuff for, because I just, I, I just end up enjoying almost all of it. Yeah, no, I mean, they've been remarkably, cause I usually, I mean, I usually check out their new album, especially now it's easy on like Spotify and things like that. Yeah. They're, they're remarkably consistent. I guess another band I, I didn't, I should bring up too, which is probably something they were super influenced by is Faith No More. Oh yeah. Um, cause like, you know, some of the, some of Patton's vocal lines, I think you can definitely hear. And just Faith No More, I, I got, I suppose they were kind of like almost foundational to like new metal in a lot of ways now that I think about it. Well, and especially, yeah, anything doing. that you would call like new metal or alternative metal, like I feel like it, it is pretty much a straight line back to Faith No More, at least to some degree. Yeah, and maybe Tool in there as well because they were out a little bit before a lot of that stuff too. Yeah, um, but we should. Uh, you mentioned "Be Quiet and Drive," which is you know kind of one of their hits, and uh, this is just a really good song. It's a really good song, very well written song. So we should just listen to this. <laughs>
yeah, this that's a good song. It's yeah. just such a good song. Like that guitar intro is just one of those things that is like permanently emblazoned in my brain. Like the little like trail off right before it kicks in, and just the the chorus. I don't know. It's just like it's one of those things that like there's it's such a time and place thing for me like i hear it and i immediately transplanted right back to my old pickup truck full of band equipment driving the i5 <laughs> you know that kind of thing and yeah. it's i don't know yeah it, it, it's probably my favorite song of theirs still um there's actually a really amazing acoustic version of that song they did uh for a long time, the only way you could find it was, like, back in the, like, Napster, you know, LimeWire searching days. Like, there was just, like, a bad bootleg MP3 of it floating around. But at some point, I think it ended up on the, of all things, the Adam Sandler movie Little Nicky, the soundtrack. Uh, <laughs> which is maybe not where I would go looking for my Deftones tracks, but that's, it's on there. And they put it on their B-Sides album also. Uh, and it's... It's a re- also a really good version of that song. I'm not normally into like slowed down acoustic versions of songs I like, but that one is is really special. Yeah, like that was a, that was a weird thing. Like '90s, maybe up through very early 2000s film soundtracks, sometimes had like the weirdest stuff on it. Oh yeah, there's just like bizarre bands that were like on, you know soundtracks for like super big budget action stuff or comedies it's pretty funny yeah um, i mean yeah, there's a lot of that stuff was just like what did the band have lying around that you know that they were approached by the label or by the studio or whatever and just like hey we need a song you do have any stuff that we think would go well with this movie and that's how you ended up i think with a lot of those like very strange choices on some of those soundtracks is just like this is what we have here you go <laughs> totally um, and there's something about, and I'm, I'm horrible on music theory. I don't know, Jason, you jump in cause you know that stuff, but just the way that they're, they're kind of chord voicings are very different. You know what I mean? Like it's heavy, but it almost has, it's kind of weird suspended chord quality to it. If you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know what yeah, I'm trying I, to say. I'm, I'm, I, I'll jump in as the resident jackass. Uh, yeah, like <laughs> a, a lot of it has to do with the tone that they've chosen for the guitar, and it sort of separates itself from that uh, really bass-heavy chugging throughout the, throughout the whole song. Uh, and part of it is like those really extended intervals, like ninths and elevenths, and just really fu- like stuff that you might hear in jazz. Weirdly, um, I, I I'm not you know I'm not Kirk Hamilton, previous Mintrax guest and host <laughs> of uh, of his own uh, very successful music-based podcast, but. Um, it is like you're, you're right that you're hearing a lot of notes that don't necessarily like belong in uh, in in, harmo- in harmony with each other in that chord in those chords, and they like draw them out long enough for you to like pick out each individual uh, like note in that whole riff, right? I think that's part of what uh, Alex was saying about the way that this song intros sort of like it's got really interesting harmonies and dis- dissonances, and then when it launches into like a really solid what should be just a straight up power chord, they they decide that's not quite enough, right? It makes it really texturally interesting, I think. Yeah. Yeah. The first, actually the first like 30 seconds almost reminded me of, like Sonic Youth or something like that. Oh, totally. Metal at all. Um, just that real <laughs> dissonant kind of like drony chord thing. Yeah. Um, what else? Oh, I wanted to, uh, I want to play mess or, uh, mascara just from the beginning. Just cause I, I don't know. This just struck me as like another just really strong song. And, and one of the things I was impressed by with this album is it's kind of it's definitely sort of samey i guess if i had a criticism of it you know what Mm -hmm. i mean like they definitely have like the kind of formula but i think overall the songs are really high quality and so i didn't really mind the sameness you know because i felt like 
like pretty much every song, you know, stuck out to me or had things that were really, you know, exceptional to me. So I think that even though they're working in a pretty, you know, template, which they kind of started to break more on White Pony, the next album, I think that, you know, they, they had the, the material to pull it off. And yeah. um, Mascara was one I really liked. Like here, it's almost like metal Radiohead or something. Yeah. Yeah, when they get slow and they get kind of, you know, moody, uh, I feel like they... It just, uh, yeah, like you said, it, it doesn't necessarily sound like they're coming from a metal place. Like, it has this, like, almost uh, experimental, is maybe calling it to... Uh, not the right term for it, but it does feel like a little bit more outside the range of what you would expect from a record like this. I also feel like in that song, you can kind of draw a line from that one to where they ended up with Change in the House of Flies on White Pony. Yes, definitely. I just like I like this little groove they have right here with that, that like kind of single note guitar thing. That's really yeah. awesome. Are there any? Um, I guess I should ask you. So you picked it. What are, What are some of your favorite songs, or maybe ones that we haven't covered? Because I, you know, uh, I think despite it being the most straight up like rap metal alt metal song on the record i think head up is really good because it's it feels like the most pit song they have on the record like it's the one you definitely feel like you you can see dudes throwing elbows in the pit for it just as you're listening to it um i think that song's great it feels like you know for a song that definitely could be like a wrestler's theme song it is uh it, it definitely it, it it stands out i think um, the other thing I would say, I, I, MX is not my favorite song, but the secret track that comes about 25 minutes of silence after <laughs> MX actually is, uh, that, that song I think is, is really solid. I just, I, yes. I loved, I loved that trend of nineties albums that were tr- doing dumb shit with the, the CD format. And so like, here's 25 minutes of silence followed by a good song. Uh, there was one band I remember I grew up. Uh, a local band I grew up where you had to rewind once the first song started back like eight minutes on the CD. And that's how you got to the secret track. That Whoa. kind of, du- that kind of dumb stuff was the kind of thing that I, I really yeah. enjoyed about the CD format. It's funny now though, because it's kind of, it's just really silly on Spotify. Cause then you see like, Oh, this is MX a- is like 32 minutes long. Yep. But I mean, the first time that was totally a thing. The first time I remember it, I think it was the one that got passed around a lot was a, uh, 
Nevermind by Nirvana. Right. Which had Endless Nameless at the end. Um, but yeah, that was a funny thing. I remember there was other weird st- stuff. Like one time I had a CD uh, of Love Sexy by Prince. And that's just one track. Right. Like everything's one track. So you can't rewind. You can't fast forward. But yeah, that was that was kind of a fun thing people would. But I forgot about that negative space thing. I think that I had another CD that did that. Where So you, t- you start track one and then you're, you're rewinding. Yeah. It's a negative, right? Yeah, it goes back to like negative eight or nine minutes or something before you get to the song. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Well, let's let, let's listen to Head Up because I had that one too. Um, just because it is, you know, well named, I guess. You know, it's, it's, it yeah. definitely seemed like they wanted to make sure that the, the metal crowd had some, you know, a heavy one. wild thing about this song is that so a lot of the lyrics that chino writes uh you know they're about stuff but like the 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 phrasing and the lyrics that he writes tend to have this very free form kind of free association kind of quality to them this one which is definitely like the angriest song on the record and feels the most just like here is your here's your new metal song is actually about the heaviest shit I think on the album. Uh, it, so uh, Max Cavalera of Soulfly is on this record too. Uh, he's he's singing along, and it's about Max's stepson who died in a car crash. Like it's not, it does it's not like aggro bro dude, oh, you know, wow. like you know, like screamy stuff. Like it's literally them expressing grief over the death of his stepson, and played to this song that just does not have that vibe to it at all. So it's a really strange contrast but like works in a way that i would not have ever expected wow i didn't know that is that the guy from sepultura uh max n- or no? no i i only know him from soulfly i don't know if he's been in any oh right yeah, yeah yeah sorry sorry yeah wow i didn't know that that's crazy yeah i you know now that i think about it i didn't pick up a lot of lyrics from this album in general just because i think the way he sings is is so kind of he really stretches out his phrasing of a lot of stuff, and then also he, he generally has like a pretty heavy effect, yeah, uh, on the vocals. So I guess the the lyrics don't. I appreciate more the melodic sense of the the vocal lines than I really absorb the lyrics. But I should listen harder to those. Yeah, I um, mean the, the lyrics. I, I think Chino Moreno is a really interesting lyricist, but I, I think you know in terms of like writing songs that like the words really stick with you. It's not necessarily like, especially this record. I don't necessarily know. There's a ton of those songs where it's like, I'm singing along to this stuff. Like be quiet and drive is one. Um, and I would say, you know, to a slightly lesser degree, my own summer, but a lot of it is just the emotion of the singing. Like it's the energy of it and the feel of it. Like the words, 
I, I, I am not a lyrics person by nature. I'm a drummer for God's sakes, but, uh, you know, like it, it's, I, I, I take the words as, as the emotion. I don't necessarily like take them as like something that I'm referencing back to over and over again. It's more that I like the singing and I like the quality of his vocals. Yeah. And, and like, it, he's really an amazing vocalist in that he, he's coming up with great vocal lines, I think in a context where, you know, the music is not really giving him a ton to work with. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's, ge- it's generally sort of a pretty, rep- you know, repetitive riff. That's It's a, a good riff, but it doesn't have a lot of, like, melodic structure in terms of it's not going through, like, chord changes and things yeah. like that. And he and he comes up with, like, really inventive, I think, inventive vocal lines, especially melodically and, and phrasing-wise. That it, so I really admire that about about him. Um, I guess one last song I wanted to play is, uh, uh, is it Labia or is it La- Labia? It's spelled it's slightly called. different, but I believe yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's what it's called. Um, but it's really good. Let's let's listen to that. The one forty, Jason. Yeah, I just think that whole sequence is really strong. Yeah. Just the way it goes from part to part and kind of builds. I had a question for you, Alex, because mm-hmm. I've never seen him live. Is is like the guitar player doing some of the shouty vocals? Like um, on there where Chino is kind of like singing melodically over it. And like, it's a little bit on like, you know, my own summer to the shove it, shove it part. Yeah. Or is, it, is that just overdubbed or something? Uh, I'm trying to remember. I, the la- so the, I, I've seen them both before their bass player, Chi Chang, died. And I saw them a few years ago with their, their current bass player. My remembrance is that when, when bef- prior to, to, to Chi's death, uh, he was doing a lot of the backing vocals. And I'm pretty sure that the current bass player is also doing that stuff. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I, I didn't know. Sometimes bands do stuff, you know, in the studio that's not really, you can't pull off live. So yeah. I didn't know. Yeah, I think um, a lot of that backing vocal stuff came from Chi, and I think it comes from their current bass player. Cool. Yeah, I mean, this was, this was a lot of fun. Like I said, it's White Pony has been an album I thought was really a great, you know, rock album of the early 2000s period and uh so it was fun to kind of see where they came from and and also i you know going back to the first one adrenaline just seeing how they kind of at this point in their career almost were making these really huge leaps just in in just the creativity of the band you know from one album to the next i mean 
and then if you go, you know, from White Pony and beyond back to Adrenaline, you're like, wow, this doesn't even feel like the same band in, in certain respects. And, you know, it, that, that can go either way with a lot of bands. Like, you know, it, many bands, you know, experiment and try to get away from, you know, the sound that they initially established and go in directions that ultimately, you know, are their undoing. But I yes. feel like they've had a tight grip on the reins of, like, what they think their their band should sound like and what they what they how they want to experiment and how they can apply that to the sound they've always had. Like it's, it's as, as wild and out there as they've gotten, I feel like they've always managed to sound identifiably Deftones, um, yes. no matter how experimental they get. And even if you go into like the, the, the Chino Moreno, like uh side catalog, like he has multiple side projects he's done over the years, like team sleep and palms and crosses. And like, that stuff is definitely not Deftones, but you can hear those same influences and a lot of, you know, some of the, the, the songwriting, not, not tricks, but, you know, some of the songwriting notions that they have, have adhered to over the years in those projects as well. So mm-hmm. it's, I don't know, it's just like their catalog and, and Chino's catalog is something that I, I, I celebrate <laughs> and have celebrated yeah. for many years. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you are right, though, that there's a good through line even as experimental as they get when, and I think this happens with a lot of bands. Sometimes it's like the second or third album where you kind of just feel like they had the first album, but then there's an album where it's like, okay, this band sort of gets what it's about now. Yeah. You know, and sort of really forms the identity. I think, you know, comparing the first album to this, I just feel like with around the fur, they just, they seem way more assured about what the band is supposed to be like musically. And they just carry it off with a lot more polish and, just almost a self-assured quality, I think. And, and that, you know, sort of provides maybe the springboard for them to be more experimental as they go on. But, you know, a lot of the, the roots of all that are, are, are evident on this album. Yeah, for sure. Well, this was fun. Um, it's a good album. It was been good to listen to. I kind of had forgotten about the Deftones for a while. And I <laughs> think I'm going to, I know there's a new white pony on vinyl that's out for the, yeah, um, there's a reissue they're doing, and I think there's like a remix album they're talking about putting out called uh, Black Stallion, uh, which oh. I don't know a whole lot about, but I think they just announced that they're doing it. So they're they're doing some White Pony stuff this year for sure. Yeah, and I think the new one, I was reading it. So Back to School was kind of a single off White Pony, but I guess the band didn't intend it to be on the album, and the label like kind of threw it on there as the first song. Well, so and they so, they put it out originally without that song, um, and the, the so back to school is a redo kind of of the the cl- the closing track on the album called Pink Maggot, and so that song is super slow. It uses the same chorus and is very like you know kind of kind of droney. And at some point, I think someone at the label is like, "We need we need a song that sounds like your last record." So they kind of begrudgingly read, like, did a version of the song that was that ended up becoming back to school with like the rap verse and all that stuff. And I don't think they like that song very much. It was kind of like a label thing that was foisted on them. Yeah, I was reading, and I think there might that might be missing now. And then another song that had appeared on certain pressings, but not the one that I had. Is it the Boys Republic? I don't remember. Okay. Yeah, that was a hidden track. I think that was a hidden track on like the European release or something. And it's actually one of the best songs on that album. It's just that unfortunately it's not available on, I think, any of the US pressings. Yeah, no, I I, I might, I might try to track that down because I'd like to have it on vinyl. So, um, but yeah, Deftones, they are a good band. And I, I like, I also appreciate bands that I think 
you know, just endure over time and continue to do good work after, you know, maybe the spotlight has kind of shifted from what the zone of music that they were in, you know, right. is kind of gone, but, you know, they just sort of have like, you know, in the same way we, you know, I don't listen to Pearl Jam a ton, mm-hmm. but I sort of admire how Pearl Jam just like, you know, they continue to do what they do and they have their fan base and, and you know what I mean? Like, even though they're not hip in any way, shape <laughs> or form anymore, like they, they just keep doing it. And, you know, I think the Deftones have, have really endured. And like you said, I mean, I always check out their new albums and I'm always pretty impressed by like, damn, like new stuff is really good. So yeah. I'd encourage everyone to check out the whole discography. Um, so, yeah, we're going to change. We're going to change to uh, my pick uh, this week, which was a, you know, I mean, in my opinion, one of the, the greatest albums ever made. And, you know, as we, we kind of didn't do the show last week and I talked a little bit quickly, um, you know, just about everything that's been going on uh, here in Minneapolis and, and around the U.S. and around the globe, uh, you know, after the murder of George Floyd. And, you know, it, it's kind of crazy how relevant an album from the late eighties is still, and maybe that's sort of a sad commentary in some ways, but um, you know, I think public enemy is, is still in their message and, and their music is still very relevant. So um, I mean, I'm sure you had to be aware of them. Were you a fan back in the day or um, did you have any experience with public enemy? Yeah. So like I, around the time this album came out, I was still too young really to get into, to be into hip hop and to know much about, really rap music especially like you know the more political uh, elements of rap music i think in 1988 i was like seven or eight years old so like i was just not there yet um but public enemy is actually one of the first rap groups i ever really latched onto, um and it was uh fear of a black planet that ultimately did it um so that, that was the one that came out in 1990 and i remember the it, of all things, the thing that introduced me to them, because I was watching a lot of MTV back then, was the video for 911 is a joke. Um, yep. <laughs> that's, you know, I mean, that that would that song was everywhere. And uh, it's, you know, at the time, I didn't really understand what that meant. Like, I didn't really understand, like, why they were, you know, talking mess about 911 and, like, what was going on there. But the song was very catchy in a way that, like, I and, and and different in a way that I was just not that familiar with. And so I remember I wanted to get the tape, but my parents were like, "There's a parental advisory sticker on this, and you're like, nine, you're like ten years old. You can't have this yet." Um, so I I didn't get that album right away. But later on, I think like a year later, um, Anthrax's Attack of the Killer Bees came out. And the video for Bring the Noise with Anthrax and Public Enemy came around. And so that, once again, I was reintroduced to them. And I was like, oh, man, this is really good. And so I'm pretty sure the first parental advisory album I ever convinced my parents to to let me get was Anthrax's Attack of the Killer Bees, which was immediately followed by Public Enemy's Fear of a Black Planet. Um, And to a extremely sheltered suburban white kid of that era... Um, listening to an album that is so deeply political and so deeply entrenched in these, you know, uh, these stories of, you know, oppression and, you know, the, the, the way that black people are treated in America, it was, it was very jarring, you know, in the sense that like it, it, 
I wouldn't say that it necessarily woke me up right away to what was, you know, like what they were saying, but it forced me to think about some things that at that age, I was not well prepared to to think about. And I don't know that I completely got it at that point. I, I, I would say it was probably several years before I really kind of came to understand the kinds of things they were talking about. But, you know, being exposed to that at that age was, I don't know, like it's just, it, it, it it opened me up to a whole avenue of music and a whole avenue of politics that I just, I think, I, I don't know that a lot of kids my age, certainly not the kids I grew up around, uh, were exposed to or interested in. Can we, uh, can we put the listeners in your shoes a little bit by playing a little bit of 911 as a joke? Please do. Yeah, let's Black do it. Planet? Yeah. Hit me. So get them off truck and involve the corner They don't care cause they stay paid anyway They treat you like an ace that can't beat the tray I know you stumble with no use people If your life is on the line then you're dead today Late comers with the late comers stretching That's a body bag in disguise y'all I'll bet ya I call them body snatchers cause they come to fetch you With an autopsy ambulance just to dissect ya They are the king cause they swing amputation I'm just imagining pre-teen Alex Navarro sitting with like a pen and paper just scratching like 911 uh joke yeah uh police response uh <laughs> yeah. improper <laughs> yeah i mean yeah, this is uh... i feel like at that point in my life all i knew about 911 is you call them and they come help you know like that's there's there was no perception of the idea that like that might be different for a whole other subset of the american population so like just even conceptualizing that was kind of a wild thing and i'm, I'm well aware that, that it's it's wild that a a flavor flave song is the one that got me to down that path but that's that's where we ended up <laughs> yeah it's a great one what we should also play just because we already mentioned it and, and you're right there there they did a version with the thrash metal band anthrax that was pretty popular at the time and i think definitely broke them um into a, a different realm um, yeah but but bring the noise, I guess you know there's a, there's a few iconic Public Enemy songs, but it's, this is definitely one of them. Um, so why don't we play Bring the Noise? Because I think this is you know was probably a lot of people. Uh, in addition to nine one one, this is probably the, the other entry point I think for a lot of people. Yeah, can I uh, the Anthrax version or the Public Enemy? No, version? let's do the one off the record. Okay. Too black, too strong. Too black, too strong. Yo, Chuck, these honey dribbles are still front on us. So I'm not waiting to do this, cause we always do this. Ha <laughs> ha, yeah, boy. Bass, how low can you go? Death row, what a brother know. Once again, back is the incredible. Rhyme animal, the uncannable. The public enemy number one. Five folks said freeze, and I got numb. Can I tell them that I really never had a gun? But it's the wax that determined the X bun. Now they got me in a cell, took my records, they sell. Cause a brother like me said, well, Farrakhan's a prophet and I think you wanna listen to what he can say to you. What you wanna do is follow for now. How will the people say, make a miracle, keep up the lyrical. Black is back, all in, we're gonna win, check it out. Here we go again. So this song was a fairly direct reference to a review, I think, of their first record 
which I think had kind of loosely referred to the album as noise. And I'm not sure if it was in a derogatory way or not, but I think maybe Chuck D took it that way. Um, and that's kind of what that song I think was born out of. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's an incredible song. Number one. I mean, yeah. it's just a super exciting musical song, but also like, you know, going back to some of the, um, stuff you were talking about in terms of your perspective and politics, um, they were also dropping like really deep references to stuff that at that time, you know, for majority of white Americans was not known. Right. Like that, that too black, too strong. That's a sample of Malcolm X. And then, you know, like in the, uh, in the, uh, in the song that, you know, Farrakhan's a prophet. And I think you ought to listen to, which is, you know, reference to Louis Farrakhan of the nation of Islam. Um, you know, and they drop, there's a lot of little references, passing references to, you know, like Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, the Black Panthers. And like, there was a lot of little nuggets for people that was stuff that was not at that point, you know, this is prior to the movie Malcolm X. So, um, it was interesting what they were sort of delivering into the, the homes of, um, you know, white kids in the suburbs or small towns like myself, you know, um, and, you know, there's obviously Farrakhan himself can be sort of a problematic figure as well but i, I think that's um, understating it i mean he's yeah it's pretty clear he's like a vicious anti-semite and has you know yeah, a number of yeah. of deeply troubling political views but you know in at the time in the 80s just putting his name into something in music like you said is a statement in and of itself you know and ultimately they've had to distance themselves from some of those things like remember it was professor griff was the one that was on record at one point like talking you know, basically blaming the Jews for a lot of things and talking about the sin of yeah. homosexuality and stuff. And I think he, at some point in his life, walked a lot of that back and said, "I what I said was super ignorant." But you know, there was there was a time there where it felt, and I think this record in particular, it felt like they were trying to maybe figure out exactly you know how to deliver that message and what kind of message they were trying to deliver. And you know, the anger is there, and I think the the frustration is there, and it's clearly communicated in a way that is unlike much else from that era you know it, as much as the 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 Flava Flav song is the one that introduced me to the group the second you hear Chuck D start rapping like it, it's very hard not to be transfixed by it like he it's not just the lyrics which I mean he is an incredible lyricist but like his delivery I think still to this day is 100% one of the most captivating deliveries of anyone in rap music like he just holds your attention in a way that very few rappers like like it they just have that innate natural skill at it yeah and he just and even you know just physically the tone of his voice that like super deep baritone you know it just has such authority and and the way he raps is almost like delivering like a a sermon or something like that it, yeah it's it, it's an amazing um amazing voice and and at this time he's writing at a very 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 high level probably as high as anyone ever did in hip-hop um any other, uh, what other songs kind of, I mean, there's, this album is pretty, it's pretty tight from front to back. There's really not a lot of, for as long as it is, there's not a ton of filler on this album. It's, it's a, it's a pretty. Yeah. It's, 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 it's like, there isn't really much in there that like lulls at all. Um, so this, I ended up getting this record probably not too long after I bought Fear of a Black Planet. And like, these were the two public enemy albums that like I had in rotation a lot. Um, don't believe the hype. I think is one that I ended up listening to just constantly. Um, so I, I would I would probably want to hear that one right now. Don't, 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 don't. 
what you're looking for, the same thing. It's a new thing. Check out this, I bring. Uh-oh, the rope below the level, cause I'm living low next to the base. Come on! Turn up the radio. They're claiming I'm a criminal. But now I wonder how. Some people never know. The enemy could be the friend guardian. I'm now a hooligan. I rock the party and clear all the madness. I'm not a racist. Preach the teeth to all. Cause some they never had this. Number one. Never wanna run about the gun. I wasn't licensed to have one. The minute they see me, fear me. I'm the epitome. A public enemy. Used abuse without clues. I refuse to blow a fuse. They even had it on the news. Don't believe the hype. Like, I think more than anything else on this record, like, this is the catchiest of their songs. Like, it's the one that feels the most, like, ready-made, radio-made, but at the same time, like, does not sacrifice any of the thinking or the, you know, the the politics behind what, you know, what the rest of the record is about. Like, it, it feels like it's just... Like that to me of of all the songs on this record, like feels like the most like clear cut. Here is your song of the record. Yes, definitely. I mean, it, it's I think it's definitely one of the most commercial, but I think it still has a lot of their um, you know sonic kind of footprint. And uh, I did kind of want to mention too, just because um, Public Enemy was the group, you know, Chuck, Flavor, Griff, and and Terminator X, but also. Um, their pro- producers, the Bomb Squad, yes. were equally kind of a part of this band, and and I think they, which was Hank Shockley, Keith Shockley, um, Eric Vietnam Sadler, and and Gary G Wiz. But these albums are really insanely produced. Like they, you know, they they talk about bring the noise, but there's always they they're cutting up, you know, like R and B music, but it's this really kind of weird mechanical almost feel with a lot of like kind of squeals and. I mean, almost if you'd associate with like industrial music or something. Totally. Um, it's just, it's very thick and like aggressive uh, is mixes. It, is it She Watched Channel Zero that has the Slayer sample? Because I would like to hear that one. Because that, that to me is like one of the wildest samples on this record. Yes, it is. That is Slayer. And I believe at the time, Slayer are label mates with Public Enemy. I think you're right. Because they, Rick Rubin signed Slayer, and I believe Rain and Blood originally became was a Def Jam release, which is very Rick Rubin, like Slayer and Meets Public Enemies. Is totally. Very, like, his aesthetic. But yeah, we should hear She Watched Channel Zero. Because this is like, you know... And you know, frankly, this song too, if, if we look back to the Deftones and New Metal, like, this is kind of heading in that direction as well, and it might have been one of those influences. You're blind, baby. You're blind from the facts. Oh, you are, because you're watching that garbage. The woman makes the men all pause And if you got a woman, she might make you forget yours There's a five-letter word that describe her character But her brain's being washed by an actor And every real man that tries to approach Comes a close to comes, it gets just like a rope I don't think I can handle it, she goes channel to channel Oh, looking for that hero she watched Channel Zero. She watched, 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 Yeah, just the way they use that riff and the way they layer other stuff on top of that, like, is just so... That... I mean, I don't know. It's... It... It... 
it sticks with you in a way and it's just like as someone who was definitely into slayer at one point like it's just fascinating to see that guitar line used this way yeah i mean and it's just a lot of the music you know especially the the wilder stuff it's almost like it feels like it's sort of teetering on the verge of chaos yeah just there's so much like all these like layers of noise and then a lot of kind of just you know that really whiny and, and piercing kind of stuff um which is one of the great things about this album as well, in addition, obviously, to the to lyrics. Yeah. Um, one one that I think was a big one for me, which is another one of the big uh, um, kind of hits off the album, so to speak, is, is Rebel Without a Pause, which I think this, this I love this track because it's like, it's built as the most like simple element mm-hmm. that should almost be kind of annoying, but it, it works like super well. Brothers and sisters! Brothers and sisters! I don't know what this world is coming to. Yes, the rhythm, the rebel. Without a pause, I'm lowering my level. The hard drama, will you never been I'm in? You want styling? You know it's time again. D, the enemy telling you to hear it. They praise the music, it's time to play the lyrics. Some say no to the album, the show. Bum rush the sound. I made a year ago. I guess you know. You guess I'm just a radical. Not on sabbatical. Yes, to make it critical. The only I could just listen to this entire song if we want to do that because this is yeah, it's true. It's a good ass I'm kind of losing. I was losing, I was forgetting we were on a podcast. Yeah, so I just kind of like just listen to it. But uh, yeah, no, that's that's another really good one. And I mean, that's the thing. I don't think there's a bad song on this record. Like you know, there are definitely like interludes and things that are like a little less songy than than others. But like even the interludes, I feel like are pretty compelling. Um, and just, you know, we talked about the production, the sampling, like there's there's one other one on here that I, I think ultimately went on to become uh, a fairly uh, influential sample. Uh, it, it's from Show em What You Got. Uh, if you could just load that one up real quick. There it is. Oh, yeah, that's sax. So that sax comes from uh, a song called... Darkest Light by the Lafayette Afro Rock Band. Um, and if you have if were into rap in the 90s, you undoubtedly heard it in, if not Rump Shaker, then maybe something like In Too Deep's Back to the Hotel or uh, what I was just going to say, I was, gonna, I was waiting to say In Too Deep, Back to the Hotel. That's a yep. dope song. Those are the two that I, I immediately associated with. But I'm pretty sure that track is the first one of that era to use that sample. So it's actually Public Enemy's fault that uh, every rap song for the next several years decided to use that sax line. Uh, yep. but, and, and good on them because it's a, it's a really good sample. Um, it's just fascinating just to, to, to draw the lines to like, to all the different, you know, uh, sampling and, and DJs that you end up using that. Yeah, that's a great, um, and also there's, um, what is the song? Cause they sued successfully sued Madonna, um, for oh. one of the, uh, she basically stole. Oh, what's it's one of the interludes again? I don't know if it's mind terrorist. Um, 
Dang it. So, Justify My Love by Madonna. Jason, try Mind Terrorist. No. No, dang it. It's one of the interludes. It was um, Security of the First World. Yes. I just went and looked that up real quick. All right, so this is basically just like a beat interlude. Right. Um, but then we should listen to Justify My Love by Madonna real quick. <laughs> I didn't think we'd be doing this, but why not? Why not? So, yeah. That's uh, that's literally the same. That's just the same beat. Yeah, now she's putting some like keyboard pads right. over it. But, but that, no, that, you, you, just, you just straight up ripped that beat. <laughs> yep, totally. And look, again, so I, you know, hip-hop and rap is so built around sampling and taking of existing music and, and reworking yes. it in ways to, to fit what you're doing. But, you know, I, at the same time, a lot of those samples, at the, especially these days, have to be cleared. So I, I can kind of understand why they would just look at that and go, uh, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, and that one that one doesn't sound like it. That one sounds like they, a drum machine program, too. Yeah. I bet they programmed that beat. That doesn't sound like a sample from an old record. But yeah, they, they used it. I mean, PA, you know, was a huge sampling band. I, I kind of wonder, you know, when you talk about records like this, it's kind of a side thing, but... You talk about a record like this, a record like uh, Fear of a Black Planet, which is almost arguably even kind of crazier in terms of production. Um, I don't know if you could afford to make these records now, because I don't know if they were clearing everything back in those days, you know. I would hazard to and, guess they were de- they were clearing some stuff that they felt like they had to, but probably not all of it. Yeah, like they use on uh, Rebel Without a Pause is like the funky drummer beat by James Brown, right. which is, you know, maybe the most sampled beat of all time. So I'm sure that big stuff they were doing, but, you know, like when you're talking, what was the the sax riff from some that must be an obscure like used record store find yeah what was it that one there was one oh i remember what it was no actually it was that song um rebel without a pause that's the one they had flavor flav actually playing the the sample drums over on, on a drum machine live while they were recording it so i think oh, he's he's okay. using it's using the funky drummer stuff but he's actually hitting the keys on the drum machine uh, to the okay, song so so it's not technically a sample then. Yeah, te- technically he's playing to. over it. He's just using the sampled drums to to play a beat over it. Yeah, actually that's that brings up a, a good, you know, people kind of have a certain view of flavor, but um I think it's interesting that he's he was somewhat of a child prodigy musically. Yeah. Um and he's he's a classically trained pianist. He plays drums. When I saw him he played bass, drums, keyboards, live. Um he's so Flav is, you know, quite a talented guy actually. You know, despite kind of the character, and I don't know how much of that character sort of became real life after a certain point for him. Yeah, I uh, I think once VH1 got a hold of him, like, you know, it's understandable that you would maybe have that particular perception of him, the Flavor of Love version of Flavor of Flavor, Flavor, Flavor. But yeah, like, the thing is, like, he's widely considered the, you know, if not the greatest, certainly one of the greatest hype men of all time for a good reason. It's because he's extremely good at what he does. Like, as much as he is you know, kind of the yang to Chuck D's yin, like he, they play off each other so well, especially on these early records. And it's kind of hard to imagine 
this group without him. And you oh, know, yeah. I, I know that they have like a, a, a wedge at this point and they're not talking, especially after the, the Bernie Sanders rally stuff. But, you know, when you go back to these records and as much as Chuck D is clearly the, you know, the commanding officer of, you know, the, the vocals and the, and the, the delivery of these records, like flavors, his, his, emphasis on everything is so important to the energy of the group and the energy of the songs that like i don't think people should discount him as just sort of like the sideshow of the group he's not that i completely agree and i would go so far as i don't think public enemy works without flavor in my opinion yeah because i think think Chuck, Chuck chuck by himself it's like it's getting a lecture and flav has that kind of trickster kind of personality that you know it's sort of not undermining Chuck, but kind of like keeping a sense of humor about the music. Yeah. It's, you know, generally very, very serious and delivered in that kind of, you know, really authoritative tone of Chuck D's. But I think, I think flavor just adding like funny catchphrases and just little interjections. I mean, everything, you know, I would say that people might not think of him as a lyricist, but I'll be damned if everything that guy says is not super memorable. Totally. And like his it- tossed off little lines are like, I, I can know a million flavor ad, ad libs all from all these records. You know, they're just stuck in my head. He knows the lines not to hype. Like that's the thing is that you know a good hype man knows exactly where to interject himself and exactly what to underline. And you know, a bad one is just talking over too much. Is just there too often and is not you know not actually emphasizing so much as they are just kind of self-aggrandizing. And I, like. Flavor Flav is, you know, as hype men go, he is he is a jazz musician. He knows exactly what not to hype. He knows exactly where to put himself and how to arrange himself into a song to make it to to add the right emphasis where where it needs to be. Yeah, I'm wondering what the like what the impact of that, what the effect of that is on songs that are like are there totally or like mostly led by him. I'm thinking of like cold lamp with flavor on this album yeah i love yeah. that song <laughs> I, yeah. I love this song too and i only like started looking up the lyrics for it uh just before we started recording and some some cases on genius excuse me genius anyway where like i, I go to that site for a lot of uh, more definitive lyrics at least for like tr- straight transcription and there are some points where people just like put a question mark because they can't really tell it sounds like he's saying spimp here not mm-hmm. exactly sure uh <laughs> but in that song like it's it's really like that song th- full disclosure again as with most of these albums we've discussed on this show uh this is the first time that i listened to uh nation of millions and um like this song in particular epitomizes what uh, what he brings, what Flavor Flav brings to this group, like one of the lines or one of his runs goes, uh, "Flav in the house by Chuck D's side, Chuck got the flavor. Flav don't hide. P.E. crazy, crazy P.E. making crazy Louis for the shopping spree, which is you know pretty standard, like hyping the group, right? And then and then he heads into you're eating dirt because you like getting dirt from the graveyard. You put gravy on it. Then you pick your teeth with tombstone chips, casket cover clips, dead women, hips. Do you do the bump with bones? Nothing but love bones. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And incredible. Like, I don't, it's not even like he turned the phrase. It's like he twisted it like a, like a wet rag. It was just (laughs) crazy to hear that run and it works. It totally fits. Yeah. No, we should, let's listen to that. Cause it's, it, it is a good, I think respite in, in the album. That's, you know, like I said, it's very serious. And this is just kind of like this absolutely like Bugs Bunny kind of wacky flavor energy. So we should hear it. I guarantee you, no more music. 
music by the suckers. No more music by the suckers. No more music by the suckers. Yo, man, what do he mean by suckers, man? Yo, he don't try to put a black eye in the game. But yo, we gonna let you put a black eye in the game, boy. You know what I'm saying? That was it. Rocking yep. the beats to the spimp. His phrasing is so amazing too. He's so like he he gets ahead of and behind the beat so much, but he somehow like reels it in by the end. Yeah, just yeah, just a really fascinating personality, you know, in the grand scheme of hip hop. And you know, like I said, I I genuinely think he's probably the best hype man that has ever been. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's just you know he's an indelible character you know to me in hip-hop history and just pop culture history in general you know the, the huge clock necklace and mm-hmm. all that stuff is just like the persona was amazing a style and a um, vibe all his own yes definitely um well there's one song that i particularly just think is like an amazing song and you know it, it definitely i think has probably some of the best opening lines of any song ever it deals with a lot of stuff that people are talking about now which is the u.s prison system uh, you know, the U.S. justice system, and it's kind of done in, in this sort of, like, fantasy of, like, an action movie, but um, I think that Black Steel and the Hour of Chaos, to me, is is uh, just an amazing song uh, overall. And, uh, like I said, the opening lines of this, I think, are, are super indelible to me. I got a letter from the government the other day. I opened and read it. It said they were suckers. They wanted me for their army or whatever. particular to this song is yeah. something that will always like trigger immediate association whenever i hear it yeah that just insistent like i don't know if it, it almost sounds like they got that from like a rock and roll song or something like a 50s song i kind think of flipped it i think the the piano sample is from an isaac hayes song oh okay yeah, yeah. i don't know which one but i think it's an isaac hayes song yeah it's just so insistent and just you know i, I just still think i got a letter from the government the other day is just like an amazing opening line. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's you know, a great first verse. 
and they're they're obviously drawn parallels i think probably to like you know in the in a fictional story but you know they're they're drawn parallels to muhammad ali right you know when he abdicated the the heavyweight title because he refused to to fight in vietnam and you know just again like you know there's a lot of conversations right now in america going on about how much we invest in the military and you know police forces and you know kind of the militarization of um like the american law enforcement system and i don't know it's amazing to me that a record from you know 30 years ago can still kind of feel contemporary in a lot of senses i don't i don't know how dated it seems to me yeah i mean it, it, a lot of that is just you know one it's it's an emphasis that these problems aren't new. Like, you know, these aren't, these aren't issues that like weren't being brought up 30 years ago. It's just that they weren't reaching a mainstream audience outside of artists talking about it. And, you know, activists talking about it, like the, the mainstream had not caught up, you know, the media was not necessarily interested in really addressing these sorts of things. So it was kind of left to the performers and the activists to, to ultimately address these things that they saw as, you know, like, the the hot button issues of the time and you know i think in it by being willing to put themselves out there and willing to you know go so hard on you know these angles and these stories that you know a lot of mainstream media was just not interested in um mm-hmm. by virtue of that you know they they were i think an album the, these like this album in particular holds up as well as it does because they they were willing to call what they saw at a time when that was not considered you know couth like that was not something that people a lot of a lot of groups did even even like Mm -hmm. you know hip-hop is is a genre that's always been political and has always been willing to talk about you know uncomfortable subjects but i can't think of too many you know too many artists from this era that were willing to go as hard and you know as 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 angrily and emphatically as as public enemy did yeah and i mean you know just it's it's all over and just a lot of references you know like uh you know brothers and sisters i don't know what this world is coming to is like jesse jackson Mm -hmm. you know and there's i also think they were unique in that especially you know growing up like no one knew about the black panther party and all that stuff and you know you know talk about panther power on the hour from the rebel to you and like they were definitely putting themselves in you know kind of the lineage of stuff that's being i think in the last few weeks you know has has really been talked about a lot people like angela davis and you know the black panther party and you know stokely carmichael and huey huey newton and bobby seal and and people like that you know that 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 kind of black revolutionary politics i don't think was not at all mainstream it still isn't totally mainstream but you know it's they were throwing a lot of little references to stuff in in sometimes even just in passing that i think you know maybe people would look up later and be like, oh, okay, that's what they were talking about. Oh, yeah. It was it was wildly over my head at that age. I mean, like I said, you know, when, when I when I got Fear of a Black Planet, I was I was probably about nine or ten years old, or maybe more close to 11. But, you know, at that point, I didn't really know a lot about any of that stuff. And, you know, the American education system is known for a lot of things, but one of the things it's not very good at is acknowledging, you know, the, the darker, you know, and more... Uh, well, problematic aspects of American history, especially at that, you know, when you're that age. So, you know, what I knew about, you know, civil rights and black liberation was 
Lincoln freed the slaves and uh, we had civil rights and that was kind of it. You know, I knew who MLK was, but I didn't know a lot. I, I certainly didn't know much about Malcolm X. I didn't know much about the Nation of Islam. I didn't know much about, you know, the Black Panthers, any of that stuff. And, you know, I'm not going to say that I immediately went and looked all that stuff up and, you know, immediately, you know, in, in, uh, dug into all of the, the political references they were making. But it, it at the very least, it, it snapped me to an awareness of uh, of a politic and a, a, I don't know, I guess just a, a, a movement that I, you know, the way I was raised and where I was raised, it just wasn't something that ever was really discussed or brought up. Yeah. And I mean, going back to your point about 911, is this also, you know, a uh, the beginning of realization that, you know, the America that you or I experienced right. was not the same country that everyone else or a lot of other people experienced. You exactly. Know, too. So, um, but yeah, I mean, that's, you know, there's a lot of serious stuff in Public Enemy, but there, you know, there's a lot of fun stuff. There's a lot of great beats. I'd say if, you know what, if you like sirens, I think. PE's the group for you. I don't think anyone's mm-hmm. ever used more sirens, sirens and music. I can't <laughs> so. think of too many. No. <laughs> no, I, I, I think I should also say, you know, I, I, I think it's worth acknowledging the irony that you know we're here talking about, you know, this this seminal album in in hip hop, you know, an album that is considered one of the greatest in this genre, and you know, we're a few white guys sitting around talking about it, and you know, the politics of it and whatnot. Yeah. Um, yeah. So no, you know, I, it, I, I think there, there is, a, there is definitely an irony there that we need to acknowledge. And also, I, I would say, it's worth looking around for writing about these albums from, you know, from black critics, black writers. Uh, I would specifically point people. Uh, one that I read before coming in here, uh, Craig Jenkins, uh, who's a music critic, uh, used to write for Pitchfork. I think he's with New York Magazine or the maybe even the New York Times now. I'm not sure. Um, but he wrote a great review on Pitchfork back in 2014 of both uh, – they did reissues of uh, Nation of Millions and Fear of a Black Planet. And I think he wrote a really great piece about that kind of puts – you know, kind of just a, an, an excellent context for what these albums were when they came out and how they, they fit into the time of 2014 at least, uh, which at this point feels like it was 50 years ago. But, um, you know, it, yeah. it's I, I think that there's – there's value in, in seeking out those critical voices and and looking to them to see what they have to say about you know the impact these albums had. Yeah, absolutely. I, I follow him on Twitter. He's a great writer, um, and you know, like you said, there's a lot of great writing. I addressed a little bit of this kind of thing when you know, I think Alex and I both felt like you know we the last episode two weeks ago was definitely not the time for this, and yeah. we certainly continue to mourn and and support everyone that's doing the work out on the streets of protesting. But, um, you know, they're, they're great albums. And I think that, you know, they, they did at least open me up to ideas that I maybe was more receptive to later on. Totally. You know, because I heard them at a very young age before, like you said, I was really capable of probably, um, understanding them fully or even looking outside of my own experience in that way. But, um, I think sometimes those seeds that get planted, you know, even if, if you're too young to understand things that, um, you know, they make you maybe more open to, to certain realizations down the road. Um, so I don't know. I mean, they're, they're just, they're, I think they're one of the great, you know, to me, they're one of the great American bands, period. You yeah. know what I mean? I don't, I don't think you have to like qualify that as like rock or rap or pop. I mean, I just think public enemy to me is one of the truly great 
American musical artists of the 20th century and, and beyond. I don't think you can talk about American music, certainly of the 80s and 90s, uh, without mentioning them, because I think they are such a force and such a, a cultural uh, cultural force, you know, and, and they, they, they it, just me personally, they opened me up to a whole, you know, wide avenue of music that at that point I had not really been exposed to. Uh, and, you know, it's... Like I, I, I can't, I can't talk about my history with with that genre or you know with music in general of that era without without pointing back to them. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to play uh, one of the songs that's maybe a little bit more of an album track, but uh, I think it's kind of a fan favorite. And Chuck actually, um, I can't remember who was on the band. It might have been some of the Cypress Hill guys and Rage. They had that band Prophets of Rage. Yes, um, which was. You know, obviously titled oh, oh the song "Prophets of Rage." "Prophets of Rage" has always been kind of one of my favorite um, deep cuts on this album. It's the deepest cut, right? Because it's the last track, I think. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. You're quite hostile. I got a right to be hostile, man. My people been persecuted. With vice, I hold the mic. The vice, the vice. With force, I keep it away, of course. Way and I'm keeping keepin you from sleeping. Sleepin and on the stage, I rage and I'm rolling. Rollin and to the poor, I pour and all the metaphors. And I'm bluffing, there's nothing that we ain't did before. We played to stay the point. Made you consider it dumb by the prophets of rage. Oh, the people say, Yo, Griff, you and us one W get to the east side. We got to kick it for the east side. G. I roll with the punches so I survive. I survive. The rock cause it keeps the crowd alive. Crowd alive. I'm not falling, falling, I'm just calling, falling. But I pass the days of yes, y'all in. Yo. I wiggle round and round. I pump, you jump up. Hear my words, my verbs again. Do stuff, do I've stuff. been around a while. You can't describe my sound. Clear the way for the prophets of rage. Oh, the people say, hey, Yo, Griff, we got to get to my man. Till I got feeling It's just peace at least Cause I want it I want it so bad so Cause bad. I'm starving. starving I'm like Garvey So can you see B? It's like that I'm like that Leave me the hell alone hell If alone. you don't think I'm a brother Then check my chromosome And then you check the stage I declare a new age Get down for the prophets of rage Yeah this is such a fun song I love this song there really isn't a bad song on this album. Like I can't, I can't point to one. It's every time we, we play one of these guys, I'm like, yeah, this is a jam. <laughs> yeah, and th- there's another great example though of just those passing references. Yeah, says I'm like Garvey. I'm like Garvey. Yeah, which is a, a reference to Marcus Garvey, the you know the the kind of legendary Jamaican uh, political figure, um, and you know was very instrumental to a lot of things that came in, in Jamaica and the Rasta movement and things like that. But, yeah. um, you know, they just would just drop these little lines and you'd be like, Oh, what's Garvey. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just love that. That beat is so much fun. And, you know, just that's, that's, I mean, the, the great thing about them is like, we got very serious on this for obvious reasons, but I mean, it never feels like it's a chore to listen to either. You oh know yeah. What I mean, as it, some political music or, or, I mean, it is preachy in a certain sense, but it's just so powerful and, and, and like, so visceral that I, I never feel like it, it's awkward or or forced. Yeah, I mean, what what it's preaching never comes at the expense of musicality. Like it never comes at the expense of feeling like you are listening to a song. Like you are you are you are feeling the music as much as you are feeling the message of what they are saying. And I think that's you know, like you said, a, a hard line to walk. But you know, the production on these albums is just so exquisite that like. 
I, it's it's hard it, it it's hard to separate the music and the message from each other. Like they all feel intertwined, and the energy and the, the chaos of it all feels like it's all of a piece. And like you said, like there's there's nothing on this album that feels like a chore to listen to. It all feels like it, it threads together in such a way that I mean it's it's understandable why people call this you know one of the greatest rap albums ever because it just it it all works together so well. Absolutely. Um, I mean, takes a nation of millions, hold us back. It's a classic. I, you know, I think that we we detailed how we feel about it pretty well, and um, I think this were this was a fun. You know, both these albums, I think, were really great albums, and uh, so I don't know, Alex, would you be willing to stick around for some uh, listener questions? Oh, absolutely. Let's do it. All right going to just tee him up then uh by okay. asking all listeners uh to go ahead and leave us a review on itunes we love when people do that we got a lot of positive feedback about the show so far and it only helps to give us a few more um thank you so far to everybody who has uh we leave a, a post on the patreon on the minmax patreon uh before we record every episode to get some feedback from uh from the community and see see what people want to know and for our for our guest and host uh and that is what we've done with with these questions which i'm wasting time babbling because it's having a hard time <laughs> loading in google docs um and uh just as a as a side note uh some questions we might skip one week if we don't have time or if the guest uh, is interested in talking about uh, other questions and uh, and sometimes we'll go back into the backlog uh to see if there's if there's one that's particularly appropriate um so in case yours didn't get pulled one week uh don't don't worry it might end up might end up being heard next episode. Uh, our first question comes from James Pinto, who asks, what is the first song you heard from your favorite band? Uh, his suggestion, and I guess his example is uh, Blood Red Summer from Coheed and Cambria. Got to give it up. That's a great song. Yeah, it is. Uh, well, I, I think it, I, I stated it here on on the show that the Deftones at this point, I would probably call my favorite band. Um, Seven Words was the first song of theirs I heard. It was that first single from their first album. Um and it's still one that I like a lot. Like I, I think Adrenaline for as raw as it is, is still a great record. Um, but yeah, that song has, has stuck with me over the years. If I had to throw another one in there, just to, you know, change it up a little bit. Uh, another one of my favorite bands, uh, kind of on a different end of the spectrum, uh, is Oingo Boingo of all bands. Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I grew up in a ska scene. And so ska, <laughs> Oingo Boingo is definitely a favored band of a lot of, certainly 90s ska bands yeah um, they're like art art ska totally yeah like they're, they're they're actually an incredible band uh if you've never checked them out um and i remember that i discovered them because i was on tour down in southern california i was hanging out with this band meal ticket um and their guitar player was playing their farewell live album in the car while i was i was driving around with them and i was like what is this and the song they were playing was uh uh was it uh Oh God! What, why have I lost the title of it all of a sudden? Um, damn it! Oh, I feel terrible now. Uh, Dead Man's Party. That was it. Sorry, I I, I, yep. I I had the horn line in my head, but I couldn't get the title out of it. But yes, <laughs> that was one of their like all kind good, of minor hits. Yeah, yeah all good it, Scott leaves the horn line in your head. <laughs> totally, yeah. But it was it was Dead Man's Party, and I was like, what What is this? And then they told me it was Oingo Boingo, who I only knew as the weird science guys at that point. Um, and I, that that caused me to dig into their catalog, and that is still one of my favorite songs of theirs. Yeah, and we should also point out, just for listeners, if they're not familiar with Ongo Boingo, uh, their leader was um, Danny Elfman. Yes. Who, you know, went on to be probably one of the really big sound movie soundtrack composers of all time. I mean, yep. doing everything from, you know, 
Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, back to Beetlejuice to, you know, Spider-Man movies. I mean, he's, he works all the time and, you know, that was his band. Um, so I'm trying to think, I'm really bad about favorites because I, I tend to switch, but I guess if I had to say my favorite is probably Neil Young, I think probably overall. And I'm sure the song I heard first was just, you know, growing up in the Midwest, you know, you just classic rock radio was kind of just, you know, you almost had like had as much exposure to like your parents' music as you did your own music on the radio. So I'm sure I heard Heart of Gold at some time. And I, I remember always liking that song a lot. And it felt like it kind of stuck out to me in some way that seemed better than a lot of the stuff that it was being played alongside. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I guess Neil, Neil's probably my favorite. Okay. And, and that's, the, that's, that's the a solid favorite. pick. Any way you look at it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Matt, have you heard Charles Bradley's, the late Charles Bradley's cover of heart of gold? Yeah. Yep. That is, it's great. Such yep. a heart rending rendition I, of that song. I, you know what? If I can find it, cause I never listened to 45s. I think I might have that 45. I bought at a show. Oh, it slick. Is. And I'll give it to you just because I just, I never end up listening to 45s anymore. You, I know you're a huge fan, so you Ooh, should have it. But it was, it was, nice. a, that was a great show. That was a great show. So I'm finally getting compensated for this podcast. Exactly. Uh, Stephen Vella asks, what are your favorite albums or tracks discovered from a TV show or movie? Who? Um, so what, going back to the, the 90s soundtrack syndrome we were talking about earlier, where uh, sometimes the soundtracks, would just inexplicably be way better than the movies. Um, one that I remember really just playing the ever-loving hell out of when I was growing up was the Crow soundtrack. Um, I like the, the first Crow movie. Everything after that is a uh, uh, But that, that first movie's all right and solid, but the soundtrack is like kind of one of those defining, like, oh, yeah, if you liked alternative rock in the 90s, you own that soundtrack. Um, and there's a song on there by The Cure called Burn, that is far and away one of the best Cure songs. Uh, and I, I don't think it's been on any of their other stuff other than just that soundtrack. But it, if you like The Cure at all, like that song is, it's very melodramatic, but it is extremely good at being melodramatic. And it has like one of the all-time great, like just background drum rhythms going on through a lot of it that I, I just, I, I adore that song. I'll go back to another very iconic of that time period soundtrack. And this is a band that I like. I mean, I like them. Okay. I'm not a huge fan, but for some reason, I think this song is just like 10 times better than all their other songs, which is a song wood off the single soundtrack. Oh by yeah. Alice in Chains. And I don't know what it is about. Alice. I mean, I've just never fully embraced them. I mean, I like a lot of like rooster and some of that stuff, but for some reason, wood, I just think is like their absolute masterpiece of a song totally that was on the single soundtrack um and another one i actually wanted to bring up just because it, it recently just happened to me um in the last like couple weeks i started watching um the tv show on hulu uh based on what we do in the shadows mm-hmm. and uh i don't know if you guys have watched the show it's oh yeah it's amazing super hilarious song. it's great but that the, the song you're dead by norma tanega oh yeah um, that opening theme the, is great uh, I love that. And it's just one of those songs. I was like, what is this? When I, when I watched the first episode and I, you know, instantly went to my phone and it like, now it's one of those few shows where like, I don't try to skip past the, the intro. Cause I just, I love hearing that song. And I, it, I've never heard of that artist ever. That's super obscure pull for them. So good music, was- good music supervision on stuff like movies and TV is like one of the most underrated things about production of that stuff. Like it, I understand that being a music supervisor is mostly just a lot of contract negotiation, but it also, 
when you fi- when you have someone who is good at finding just the exact right song for the tone of what you're trying to do, like that is I to me that is like one of the most vital things you can you can do in media. Yeah, no, I mean it, it it's been sort of a golden age for that, especially now with streaming services and there's just so many more shows and movies being made that and a lot of really I, I feel like I run across a lot of very cool obscure music from from TV shows now. Yeah, uh, if I exactly. if I could throw a follow up question at you, what is is there a soundtrack that you all associate more than the the thing it's actually like the soundtrack for, like that has just in your mind just like stands out way more than the thing it's it's based on? Like the one I would I would cite is I owned the Judgment Night soundtrack, and I can't tell you more than maybe <laughs> one thing that happens in the actual movie Judgment Night, but I can I can recite parts of the soundtrack in particular <laughs> just because. I, for whatever reason, I could t- just helmet and House of Pain together. For some reason, it's just emblazoned in my brain. You know, Onyx <laughs> and Biohazard. You know that kind of stuff. Yeah, Matt, definitely. Wanna, oh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think. There was a lot of kind of in that same vein. There was a lot of '90s like rap soundtrack, like kind of hip hop oriented movies mm-hmm. that had really awesome soundtracks that maybe were not like the greatest. Um, I feel like I remember Deep movie. Cover having a really good one. Um, oh yeah, because that has Deep Cover. That's the first. Um, oh, that's a classic song. But the song Deep Cover that's that's Snoop's debut to the world on that song. Oh, you're right. That's the very first time anyone saw Snoop. You know, like the one eight seven on an undercover cop. That's part. right. Yes. Um, there's one. There was a movie with um, Ice T and I just had to look it up. Bill Paxton. Uh, oh, Trespass. Trespass and yeah. the Trespass soundtrack. It's like no one remembers that movie. I don't think it was great. I think it was that. Cla- oh wait, it's oh actually no. You know what? Trespass is actually better than you remember it. I watched it actually it's, somewhat I recently, did, and it's not bad. Like it's not great, but it's totally not bad. Okay, I'm totally just looking up Wikipedia now, but I didn't know that Trespass is Walter Hill. Yes, it is. The you know like the guy that you know did wait the Warriors guy. And, yeah, yeah, the Warriors guy. What I'm the hell? Watch Trespass. They're like undercover cops, you know, and drug kingpin stuff i don't remember the the plot they were uh there's like they find a a, like it's guys that are like going through an or like an abandoned building and they find like a cache of i think gold uh and but like the territory is run by you know a local gang and they're trespassing on their territory so it becomes this like standoff thing yeah but like i'm looking at it's like ice cube and ice tea together on the title track public enemy sir mix a lot Ooh, Penthouse Players Click. That's a good name. Uh, Black Sheep, Gangstar, Lord Finesse, Donald D, and another one too, uh, Juice, the Juice soundtrack. Was oh, like yeah. A huge deal. The Tupac movie. Um, that soundtrack is like just absolute classic. So there was a ton of like, yeah, there's a ton of like hip hop oriented movies in the 90s that had just like amazing lineups, you know, often much better than the movies that they were being based on. Totally. Sure. Uh, my example isn't isn't very striking. I I worked at a radio station at in college, um, just an intern for for a semester. And before I ever saw the movie Inside Lewin Davis, they got the uh, soundtrack in, and they didn't want to play any music from it. So they're just like, anybody want this? And I listened to that thing for like a whole summer, going back and forth uh, from school. And uh, and so now, like, I remember the cadence and the throw and the production and the lyrics of that album of that like collection of songs. It's a very musical movie. I'm assuming either of you guys have seen inside Lewin Davis. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, I love that movie. Yeah. It's wonderful. And you know, it's very like musically guided, right? It's almost a musical. Uh, And the soundtrack 
for me distills a lot of the best parts of the movie into like that I can just bite off and chew rather than you know sitting down for a two hour ten minute movie I can just sort of listen to it get the whole vibe and mood incredible movie but an incredible soundtrack separate from that too totally um okay so uh then we've got white mex who asks uh and it's kind of a vague question I'm hoping we can wrap our minds around it do streaming services make new music forgettable in a way and I think what white mex is trying to get at with there is like in the day you would buy something it would be physical and it'd be in your hand and you would sort of cherish it and treasure it and listen to it for months and months and months uh like you did with uh with deftones uh mm-hmm. what do you think that streaming services sort of rob a lot of new music 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 experiences uh from having that ex- that that like interaction with the listener i would say for my part no and i i or more specifically i would say they they're no worse at doing that than the advent of mp3 was um like once music went digital and people had the ability to, let's be honest, pirate it. Um, I feel like it, streaming services just kind of made legal a concept that was already there, which is to say getting your music from the internet and not necessarily going out and plopping $10 down for an album. Um, like to me, the, the crime of streaming services is that they don't pay artists shit. Like that's, that's the real nightmare of, of st- the streaming future right. we currently live in. And they, you know, ultimately the only people who benefit from streaming are streaming companies and labels. Um, yeah. But in terms of like making music forgettable, I don't think that's streaming services fault. I think that's music's fault. Like the reality is that a lot of music that gets put out these days, I'm, I, this is going to sound super old head. And I'm, and, and to be honest, <laughs> I'm, I, there's tons of great music still being made to this day. Like I'm not, I'm not saying that all oh, these kids these days, they don't have to make good music. Like, no, there's tons of great bands out there right now doing awesome stuff. Tons of great artists. It's out there. It's just that like the stuff that I feel like is, is brought more to the forefront in the mainstream in an era where everything's on streaming and everything's on YouTube is not the stuff that's really that interesting. And I think that the streaming services of anything, like the one benefit they have is that they have exposed me to a ton of stuff that I would never have found otherwise, because either I'm just plumbing, you know, some genre and new releases list, or someone made a playlist somewhere of something that like is in a genre that I like, but I've never heard half these bands. Like I have discovered so much new good stuff over the last like five to six years just from, you know, dicking around on Spotify that I would definitely not have found on my own. So I, to me, that stuff is not forgettable. That's those, I found tons of albums on there I've gone back and listened to over and over and over again. I think that if, if music is forgettable these days, it's because no one is putting the emphasis behind the stuff that's really interesting and really, you know, unique that's coming out these days. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to – I might disagree a little in that I do for myself – feel like streaming has changed my listening habits a bit because I I tend to like keep like a sort of a playlist for like summer. And Mm -hmm. if I just like a song or an album, I'll just like add one song from that album on this list. Just so I kind of, it's almost keeping tabs of, you know, stuff that I thought was cool. And then I'll like go back after like three months and like lots of times I'll be like, Oh wow, that was cool. I totally forgot about that because sometimes I get into this thing where it's like, I could always listen to this new thing or this new thing or this new thing or not, not even new or could be old, but new to me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Where like I used to, I find stuff I buy on vinyl still I, I, I you know, commit to a little bit more. So I think it has changed my habits. Um, I, I certainly would but, say it has changed my habits. But, you know, I will still go out and I will buy a version of an album I really love. You know, like I will, I want to put that money in the pockets of the artists that I'm, I'm currently benefiting the most from by listening yeah. to their stuff. 
you know, and I don't even have a record player, but I have certainly bought some albums in recent years on vinyl just because I want to support the artist. And I think it's, you know, it's cool to have that stuff around if I, you know, someday I decide to actually go out and get a record player. Um, it's not about yeah. listening to the record. It's just about supporting the artist to me. And to me, that's like the way I want to do it. Yeah, sometimes I do kind of like guilt Bandcamp purchases, even though I probably won't listen to the MP3s because I'll just listen on Spotify. <laughs> yeah, but I'll, yeah. you know, I if I listen to something like a ton, I'll just like I'll I'll go back and like pay the eight dollars for the record just because I feel like man, I listened to this like twenty times. Totally. Um, but uh, and uh, you know, the other thing with music and, and just getting new stuff exposed, like I think probably another thing is that just because of the changes in technology and distribution and like home recording, there's also just like probably more music period being made. Yeah. Like, then, it, you know, there's probably, I wouldn't doubt if there's a hundred times more albums released than there were in like 1965. Yeah. And I think you used to have to go to, you have to pay for a studio, go to a studio, get it produced, get it mastered, get it pressed to vinyl. You know what I mean? Like these weren't things you could just do. Yeah. It's, it was, it was so, extremely cost and resource intensive back in the day to do that stuff. And it still is like to go into an actual studio. Like it's, it, it's become, as much as the tools have been democratized, like, you know, the a lot of professional studio stuff is still incredibly expensive. But at the same time, like you said, you know, there's there's ways for people to get their music out there that don't necessitate having to be in a studio the way they used to be. And you're right. I, I do think that there is just a much greater volume of music being made and, and the access to that stuff is much greater than it ever was. Yeah, I think it's important as we're talking about streaming to, like, break out when we talk about the the greatest like uh, the offenders i guess in terms of paying artists enough it's really spotify and apple music yeah in, in large part right like the biggest most popular uh matt brought up bandcamp and i'm glad he did because i understand <sighs> that they gave a much larger cut of they do and they've been doing purchase. promotions recently where they're like hey for this day we are giving all of the money to the artists whatever yeah. it is yeah very very admirable and yeah. uh, you know waiving fees and making donations it seems like a I don't know the inner workings of Bandcamp, so I won't vouch for them. But but in terms of like the user experience, it's great. It's another app where you can stream all the music that you've bought ad free, uh, not to just be an uh, spokesperson. But like when we generalize to streaming, yeah. we're really talking about subscription based st- streaming services. Right. And I think personally, like when I think about the way I use Spotify, even three years into having premium and you know it being a cost effective way to find m- new music, to me there's like a little bit of a time crunch, like. I ha- I'm paying for this. I better get something out of it. Like I better listen to more and more and more. Maybe I don't spend as much time with certain artists or with certain things that pique my ear, which is why, you know, I'll throw something on a playlist if it, if it catches my ear. Uh, but I, I feel like I have to squeeze value out of it as opposed to like just finding music that I like buying it and having it be mine. I guess that's, yeah, that's a small contribution to the conversation, but that's no, I, I guess that's no, no, it's important. I mean, I, I, somebody, I, I just put out this record on Bandcamp, and we put it out on the seventh, I believe, which was one of the days they were waiving the fees, and we donated the uh, the proceeds to the West Broadway Coalition in North Minneapolis, which is kind of helping them rebuild. But I mean, yeah, it, it was great. I mean, you, if you had your your stuff ready to go and album art, you can get your album up in like fifteen minutes. Right. I mean, it's it's so easy, and they're so fair. And they've done a lot of these promo days, like like you said, where they've been waiving their fees. So it, I can't. I, I think trying to run an ethical online like entertainment, you know, organization is really hard. And I think Bandcamp probably does the best job of of any 
any company, whether that's streaming, you know, video, music, whatever it is. I mean, they, they really seem to like, I'm sure they're not perfect. I don't know everything about the corporation, but yeah, for sure. They, sure, they certainly seem to care or at least try to make it better for musicians. They're, they're making efforts in, in ways that other companies just aren't. And, you know, like even if, if you can't wholly vouch and just, you know, put a blanket, they are good you know, umbrella over them. Like I can say that, you know, at least the actions they have demonstrated have shown more consciousness toward this sort of thing than a lot of other companies do. Definitely. For sure. Shout out to Bandcamp. Yeah. Shout out to Bandcamp. Uh, Jeff Enright says, uh, Hey, Traxers. I've heard that some people often develop and maintain their musical taste from about around the ages of 13 to 25. Uh, I'm going to paraphrase his question and ask, um, do you feel better about your music tastes as you've changed or do you, find yourself harboring a lot of embarrassment over what you used to like and sort of pride in what you do today? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I definitely listened to my share of embarrassing music when I was growing up, like before I had really kind of, you know, been willing to put myself in and try out stuff that wasn't just like, you know, whatever was the most mainstream music coming out at that point. I certainly owned my share of embarrassing tapes, you know, like I had the Vanilla Ice album, I had, you know, the Gerardo album, like, I, you know, I just, <laughs> whatever was catchy and on MTV at that point, like, that was kind of what my music taste was when I was a kid, um, you know, and, and it was kind of around the time that I started discovering, you know, more hip hop and kind of getting into heavier music, too, that I, I feel like I started to develop something that resembled a taste level, Um which isn't to say that all the bands I listened to back then are ones that I would say hold up 100%. You know, like I listened to right, sure. a shit ton of, of no effects growing up, and I go back and listen to some of that stuff, and I'm like, eh, I don't know. Woof. Yeah. <laughs> that's, tough to take. that's tough to take for me anymore, no effects. Yeah, like Oof. like some songs hold up, some very much do not. And, you know, I, I think there's a lot of bands from that era that I would say, like, yes, at the time, I totally see how I got there and why I love this stuff, but nowadays it doesn't really do a whole hell of a lot for me. Um, but I, I, to me, I, so I do a weekly stream during, I've been doing it during the lockdown, um, uh, called We Be Drummin', which is just me playing rock band drums, uh, you know, playlists of songs from the games and whatnot. And last, last night I actually did one where it was just like 25 of the worst songs I could possibly find in that game. Um, so it was like a lot of like Nickelback and like, you know, Panic at the Disco's High Hopes and, and shit like that. Um, but the thing I, I said at the top, and it's, it's something I genuinely feel, which is that I will trust someone with the worst mu- music taste in the world over someone who doesn't like music. Like, if you say to me, I don't like music, and I'm actually, I'm stealing this line from Anthony Bourdain because he said this before, and I, I 100% agree with him. But, like, if it, to him, there's just no conversation to be had with someone who just doesn't like music or isn't interested in music. Like, it's like, okay, we're just not on the same wavelength. That's all it is. And I don't care if you listen to the stuff I think is the most... I mean, there's obviously, like, very offensive bad music. Like, if you listen to, like, fucking Nazi punk, we're not going to talk. But, like... Right. If you just like bad butt rock and that's your music and you enjoy it and it is what it is, like I don't judge you for that. I don't I'm not embarrassed for you. I don't really care. It's not important to me because it's just it's what you like and it's fine. Like I don't think my taste level is superior to yours because you like music I don't. It's just I you're just on a different wavelength and it is what it is. At least we can say like yeah, we like music. Like that's that's the attitude I've tried to keep. At least yeah. in recent years, I would, I'm not going to say I've always been unjudgmental of that sort of thing, but at this point, I don't have the energy to judge people for their, you know, whatever their music taste might be for the most part. 
Don't hate the sin yeah, or hate I mean, the sin, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even think it's, you know, I just, I guess I just, maybe I hit a certain age and I just didn't care as much about that kind of stuff, you know? And I just feel like, Hey, you know what? When you were nine or whatever, like that was the music you needed then. And you know, people change over time, but I don't, I, I think it doesn't seem useful to like be embarrassed about some stuff that you thought was like a fun song when you were like 11 years old. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you were just a kid, you were having fun. That's what was like on MTV or on the radio or wherever. And you know, I don't know. Like Seems, it's, it's fine. Like I said, I grew up in a ska scene. I can't be embarrassed at this point. Like I just, <laughs> I, I, I loved ska music so much that at this point I'm just like, you know what? This is who I am. I embrace it. <laughs> how's, how's your skanking like, these days, Alex? Uh, you know, it, it, the shoulder doesn't go back as far as it used to, so I just, I, oh, I it's more of a, a very kind of gingerly skank. <laughs> Are you like, you're, you're just like super like mustard plug, deep cuts and stuff like oh, that? Oh yeah, like, no, I, you know, I, I, I loved the old like two-tone stuff. I definitely was very much in the like 90s, like ska punk stuff. Like I've been to a million like skank and pickle shows, like that kind of stuff. Like I... I was in that scene, and I I embraced it wholly when I was uh, when I was growing up. I lo- I love this so much. I got to say, all those words that just came out of your mouth, skank and pickle, I, man, I, Mike Skank-ing Mike Lee, you... <laughs> or Mike Park, rather, Mike Park. Uh, Matt, was that your full answer? Or is there? Did do you find uh, that I your mean, that your tastes have like solidified as you've grown? Uh... No, I feel less solidified now. I feel like I'm, really? I'm probably more open to stuff now than I was when I was younger in certain respects, you know? Um, right. You, uh, for example... I don't feel like I'm you, associated you, with like a certain scene anymore because yeah. I'm just, you know, kind of past that, you know? Or, or scenes don't seem to exist in the same way that they maybe did, you know, a, a long time ago. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, it's, I feel like actually between streaming and just, I think... I'm not so concerned about genre anymore, you know what I mean? And I think that's probably a good thing. Yeah, that's a sign of growth. You know what that is? Mm-hmm. Growth. Uh, oh, it is, yeah. Our next question comes from Seth Parmer, who asks, and this one hits during lockdown, what band do you regret missing the chance to see live? Ooh, I'm trying to think of like any. That, so, okay. I've never seen Metallica live. And, you know, whatever you want to say about what Metallica is nowadays or, you know, was, you know, post-Black Album or whatever, like... Metallica is, I rightfully consider one of the greatest metal bands of all time. And so it's not that I actually had a chance to go see them, but I will say that, so right when the Black Album was coming out, my hometown in Northern California, there was a venue there called the Phoenix Theater. Uh, I grew up basically hanging around that place. Uh, It was a a converted old theater that had been turned into an all-ages venue, like local skate youth hung out there and built skate ramps on the floor and all that kind of stuff. Um, And... In, somewhat frequently, bands would use that venue as like a jumping off point for a tour. Like they would go there, they would play a show, like to get ready for like a larger tour. Um, and I started hanging out there around like '93, and right, like I just missed this window by a couple of years. Metallica played there right before they launched into their tour for uh, the Black album. Uh, and that was just like right before I got into that scene, before I knew the venue really that well. Like I just, I never, I wasn't in a place where I would have gone there to that show. And I was so mad that I, it, once I found out, I was like, wait, Metallica played here a couple of years? What the, what the hell? How did I miss that? Because it's like a 900 person theater and it's, you know, it's, it's like good size, but it's intimate for like a band of that size. Like I've seen like Slayer there. I've seen the Deftones play there. 
And, you know, when you're in it, it's like, yeah, there's a big crowd, but it's not big enough to where it feels like you can't hear the music or you can't kind of, you know, really feel like you're just in the show. And so, like, that is one I would have loved to have gone to. Yeah, well, I have, like, a ton, honestly. I have a, I have a ton. One that sticks out is oh, the two groups, um, both legendary, both that – so sometimes you just feel like, hey, I'm missing them this time, but I'll just catch them next time, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. And Radiohead played Minneapolis, I believe, in 98, 99-ish, so they would have been touring still on um, OK Computer, like, pr- prior to Kid A coming out. Right. And – I didn't go. Friends of mine went. I guess it was an amazing show. They're doing most like the OK Computer album. And they have never been back to Minneapolis. Wow. Since then. You know, so it's just like you don't you don't think at the time like you're missing your only chance. Right. Another thing that happened is um I think it was probably the same time frame, late nineties. David Bowie played at the Roy Wilkins Auditorium here. My roommate went, I didn't go. And then he came back one time and I didn't go again in 04, I think. And then he, you know, he never came back when he was alive. Right. So it's just, I don't know. Those ones just bother me because they're like, you know, really legendary kind of artists. And I, I could have gone and you just sort of, I, I get, I'm getting that way with a lot of people, you know, just like all those like kind of 60s icons are getting like older and like, can they still really play Yeah, and, and go out and do stuff? And like, you sort of. Another one that really I really regret because again you take it for granted is the Ramones. Like they mm-hmm. they toured so much, and I'm sure you know you know you out in you know out there was getting them a lot too. You know they, I felt like they came through every year, and I just was like oh, I'll get them next time. I'll get them next time. You know what I mean? And yeah. I never did. That, that's another one that totally they played at that venue that I referenced. Uh, but that was again like you know in the late '80s, actually before I lived there. So you know I wouldn't have gotten the opportunity to see them there. But yeah, I would have totally loved to see the Ramones live. But yeah, so you got to go when you can go. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. It's like a weird, it's like a weird, uh, you know, like you said, those artists from the 60s and 70s are, are aging. And if they can play anymore, they're, you know, staying at home and doing it. Uh, I, I'm of two minds with it where like there are artists that are currently playing that I'm like, I, well, not currently right now, but at least they're in the early stages or mid stages of their, of their career where I'm like, ah, I'd really like to be able to see them, but you know, it's probably going to slip. I'm not going to, not going to make it to that concert. And then there's like, Paul McCartney, never seen him live, but I grew up with the Beatles, you know, hooked right into my veins. Uh, uh, Bob Dylan and Billy Joel and Elton John, just like classics. Like I should check these off my list and it probably will never get to because they're too goddamn expensive and yeah. they don't I mean, come around I often think, enough. I think Elton no? and Billy are both kind of done. Yeah, are they completely done now? Ah, Paul man. is still touring. Uh, and I will say that uh, it, it, I am not the biggest Paul McCartney fan in the world. Like I like the Beatles, but I've I've never been super solid on his uh, his his solo stuff. But so when I when I was I used to work at Harmonix, and I was there when they were working on the Beatles Rock Band. And one of the things that was like a, a perk of of working on that game was that a bunch of us got invited to go see him play at at Fenway Park. Um, oh wow. So we went, and I went, and I'll, I'll say this, even as someone who is not the biggest McCartney fan, his live show is incredible. Like, the energy of that show and his performance is just off the charts good. Wow. How does the audience skew? Is it younger folk? It was older. I mean, it, it, but I wouldn't say that it was exclusively that way. Like, I definitely saw, like, a number of young people there, a lot of parents with their kids who were, like, very yeah. enthusiastic about the show. Like, it was... It was it was a it was a I, I, not a fully diverse crowd, but it was it was more diverse than I thought it would have been. Nice. I think they're sort of people just go as sort of for like the cultural institution of 
the Beatles. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think people just want to see the, you know, kind of the last thing that's left from that. Oh, definitely. I mean, that's that's half of mine. Like like I said, I grew up with the Beatles. My mom was a big Beatles head. Uh, and I, uh, I like having grown up in a very small town in very small towns across the Midwest and having been nowhere near any sort of reputable performance venues. It was very hard for me to like miss seeing somebody important because I was like, there's no way in hell. I'm 13 years old and the nearest venue is Grand Rapids four hours right. away. I'm not going to make that, you know, so a little bit of a weird uh, ontology of like who Jason gets to see and who does. I'm only 27. I'm too young to have some of my favorite <laughs> artists die before I can see them live. Yeah. Totally. Uh, I, I, so, I will say one, one I checked off the bucket list uh, a year or two ago was Judas Priest, who uh, I, I had never seen. Uh, I like Judas Priest a lot. My girlfriend loves Judas Priest. She loves Rob mm. Halford and she had never seen him live either. Uh, so we, they were on tour with deep purple and we drove up to like, it was, they were playing upstate New York. So we drove up there and spent the weekend up there and went into the show uh, up at like Bethel Woods, and I'll tell you right now, Judas Priest still rules. They like Rob Halford for for being as old as he is. He's got to lean in a little harder, but the, he hits those high notes in a way that I wow. was not even expecting him to still be able to do. It was a really killer show. Deep Purple also very good. Older, definitely not doing as much on stage, not as much energy, <laughs> but still put yeah. on a pretty good show. Yeah, they were supposed to come through this summer, and then COVID got it canceled. I was. That was kind of I was going to finally see him, and we'll see. I don't know if it happens at all now. But yeah, the whole I guess the whole live music industry is kind of up in the air right now. So, who knows? Bummer. Uh, let's go out on a question that's only I guess this is only directed at Matt. But hey, uh, Alex, if you've got opinions about Bob Dylan, you can let him fire here. Um, Jordo F uh, says this is a super random question, but I am curious to hear why Matt, uh, former host of the Game Informer show. Uh, podcast chose Bob Dylan's went to see the gypsy as his quote unquote farewell song to be played over his last episode of the GI show podcast. Yeah, that that's uh it's actually the demo version off the, another self portrait box set. Um, I don't know. I just, it, it's kind of become my favorite Dylan song. It's off the original version of it's off new morning, which is kind of an obscure album of his, but I think it's really good. And I don't know. There's just something very kind of wistful about that song. Um, it's the only Dylan song, I believe, where he mentions Minnesota in the lyrics. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's just one of those songs. I think I just sort of discovered it around that time. And I was really, it's kind of become a real, like one of my real favorite songs, I think, ever. Um, one interesting thing about it, if you listen to the lyrics, you want to listen to it again. Some people theorize, which Bob never really says what his songs are about. But some, pe- some people theorize that that song is about uh, him meeting Elvis. And that he had this weird interaction with Elvis Presley, and that's kind of like the gypsy in the song. Interesting. So that kind of adds like another dimension. If you listen to it with that in mind, it may just be like a made-up theory, but if you listen to it with that in mind, it's kind of interesting. Um, so, but yeah, I don't know. It's just it's one of those songs that just kind of affects me emotionally in a certain way, and I guess it was kind of emotional. Um, and you wanted everybody else even, to cry with you, right? I guess. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it's you know, it was emotional. You know, when I left GI, so I guess that's that's why. Sure, but now, but now you're here, and we're here, and we're talking about the Deftones yeah. and Public Enemy. We're better, Absolutely. Back stronger. In, back in the podcast game, you know. <laughs> back in the saddle. Uh, one of the last things we do uh, every episode. Um, actually, I'm going to let you, Matt, take us out first. I'm going to introduce the song uh, after you're done, so that we can sort of go out on this song. It's kind of a, of a chill vibe, cool. go out song. So I'll let you. I'll, get, I'll let you wrap things up. Yeah. Well, number one, Alex, 
thank you so much for being on the show. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. It was a fun discussion. I don't get to uh, I don't get to actually talk critically about music that much. So this was a good time. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, Alex is going to be going to be streaming out there. He's streaming none above all. Check out none above all. And uh, yeah, this was a really fun conversation. We appreciate you being here. And um, now Jason will take us out with the community music pick. Community Music Pick is from Stephen Vella, who actually suggested the question about uh, music that you've heard in movies or TV shows that uh, that stuck with you. This is a song called Como Me Quieres by Krongbin, uh, which is a an American Houston act. I from- love this band. It is. It is great, isn't it? They're and, amazing. And Stephen brought it up because he heard it at the end of an episode of Barry, another HBO show that uses music, I think, really super well. Uh, and I think you'll if you don't know this song already. You'll know what I mean when I say that uh, it's a great song to, to end on. Very chill, very vibes. It's one of the best bands out right now, I think. This is Como Mequieres by Krongbin. Thanks again for listening to Mintrax. Uh, catch us next time. Mm-hmm.